Hey everyone, we're back this week with our health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my co-host and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. We interview the top experts in women's health, hormones, mindset, sexual health, and so much more. Health is a huge part of running a successful business and having a fulfilling life. So it's my honor to share these interviews that show us how to eat, think, move, and live in a way that is designed to help us feel great so we can build our own empire. Now, let's jump into this week's episode. On this week's episode, we have Dr. Stacy Sims, who we are both so excited to have on. She is spreading so much truth when it comes to women's health, and she discusses the idea that women are not tiny men. We actually have our own needs when it comes to nutrition and when it comes to fitness. And so I'm just so excited that she's blowing up in this space because we need more women-focused experts out there. And this episode was so fascinating. We learned a lot about women's health. We learned about how cold therapy or cold plunges might not be the best for women. It really depends. We'll get into that. We learn also about different forms of exercise that are good for women and how things like zone two cardio might not be the best for women and which exercises are actually even better for women. So we discuss all of this and more. We talk about the gut microbiome. We talk about training. We talk about so many wonderful things and we know you're going to love this episode. Dr. Stacey Sims is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She's the author of Roar, a book written to explain sex differences in training and nutrition across a lifespan. And this book challenges the existing dogma for women in exercise, nutrition, and health. This is also the subject of her famous TED Talk, Women Are Not Small Men. Dr. Sims has published over 70 peer-reviewed papers, several books, and is a regularly featured speaker at professional and academic conferences. Dr. Sims is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to women's health, and we're so excited to have her on today. So let's get into it. Well, Dr. Stacy, we're so excited that you're here. Can I have been looking forward to this conversation? And I wanted to start the interview with a phrase that you coined that we we're just talking about, that women are not small men, which I love. So can you explain to us what you mean by that phrase? I mean, it started kind of as a catchphrase to wake undergrads up in a class after lunch. And then it became this be-all, end-all phrase for when we're looking at scientific data. Because there are so many studies that were just generalized to women, things like how much protein you're supposed to have, carbohydrate, how you respond to cold water therapy versus heat therapy. And all of the results have just been generalized because the women weren't included. And when you start really digging down and thinking about it from in utero, there are sex differences, right? How a, a baby responds to the mom's stress and other things that are going to affect the baby as it's growing. And then we see sex differences definitely at the onset of puberty. So there's sex differences all the way through. But then when it comes to actually disseminating out key points for women to advance themselves in health and fitness and you know all of biomedical stuff, they use male data and say, yeah, well, you know, women are just smaller versions of men. And it's like, well, no, actually we're not. We are not small men. So it's not a feminist cry. It's more of a, we got to take a pause and see where this data originated. And is it appropriate for women or what are we saying to women that should be different? I feel like some of that data has now 
translated into advice that people give and get on social media, which is where pretty much now everybody gets their health and fitness advice. And social media has so many benefits like sharing information and all of that. But what's the challenge with women getting their health and fitness advice from social media? Well, if we look at just credentials, right? We see a lot of influencers will say that they have certain credentials and it's not, you know, it's not the same. So we all see all these different doctors who are giving health and and nutrition advice, but they're really doctors of chiropractic. And, you know, so they might be a chiropractor and they don't have any background in nutrition, any background in training, but then they're like saying, you should be doing this. And it's like, okay, well, where are you getting this data? Where are you getting the expertise? Where is the non-biased explanation behind this? And we also see small snippets of information that's passed down from one person to another. And then on social media, it's taken as gospel. So it's really disheartening to me that I get put in the same category of all of this where I'm like, wait, I'm just giving you the science and I'm trying to translate it into easy speak, but I don't have an agenda. I just want people to understand. Um, I think the biggest misconception right now is low intensity training and zone two training. And we see that's really not beneficial for women, especially as they get older. But yet it's been out there from really powerful influencers and women are like, yeah, okay, I got to do this. And you look at the data, it's like, yeah, no, you don't need to do this. You need to do the the opposite end. You need to be doing polarized training, high intensity work, especially if you want to avoid cognitive decline and you want better body composition. So yeah, it's a frustration for sure. Oh yeah. I've worked under some of these very powerful male doctors for years and years. And I no longer do that now. Yasmin and I are in the business of women's health and it's very refreshing to be (laughs) on that side. And I've seen posts of men experts saying, by age 30, you should be able to do these many push-ups, run these many miles, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then somebody in the comments saying, does this apply to women too? And then them saying, well, I I don't know about that. Um, Right. But it's just given as general blanket advice. And it's really nice to see people such as yourself now blowing up in this space because we need more of it. So just kudos to you. Thanks. I I think it's still really interesting when you see a scientific study that's published and if it's on women, then female or woman is in the title. But it's not like if it's on men, they don't put that in the title. So Mm. it would be something like high intensity resistance training in female athletes rather than just high intensity resistance training in male athletes. Why do why do we just have to def- define that it's in female athletes? Because it's still the default that men are the subjects of every study. It's so interesting. And that's why we we're so excited about having you on because you do bring the science behind it and you explain it in ways that are very approachable and that women can understand. So I'm curious, what would you say were, would be maybe some other, like the biggest workout myths that are out there when it comes to women? So you mentioned one, what are maybe some others that you constantly are seeing that you're like, that is not the case. We need to clarify that. Fasted training. That is a big one that is more detrimental to women than anything. So that's a big myth that needs to be like eradicated. Then some of the others are the, um, just the body weight or the high repetition weights that people are doing low, lower intensity, but higher rep. So that's not that beneficial either. 
So those would be the two big ones. And I think the other one that's circulating around right now is that people shouldn't be doing high intensity interval training. They should be going back to yoga and Pilates to avoid a cortisol boost. And when you really look at if you're doing true high intensity work, you get a growth hormone response and a testosterone response, which drops cortisol. So it's actually beneficial. Things that do raise cortisol are the, you know, the moderate intensity F45 orange theories and fasted training. And does this change throughout our life stages as women, the types of exercise we should be focusing on? Or is it pretty much consistent? When we're younger, we can get away with a lot more. We can have several days of moderate intensity, high intensity, or we can just do really low intensity and our body's going to be adaptable and respond because we have our sex hormones. But as we start to get to perimenopause and into postmenopause, we don't have those sex hormones working for us. So it's a completely different ballgame, so to speak. We have to really look at what kind of external stress can we put on the body to make it adapt the way these hormones used to help us adapt. So that's where we have to take a hard look at how we're recovering, what our sleep is. We have to put a focus on resistance training, especially power-based resistance training so that we can develop that that neural pathway for strength and power and looking at that polarized where you're really doing true high intensity work or really, really low recovery work, but finding the balance for, like I said, the recovery and the sleep, because those are the two big things that really shift when we start getting into that peri and, and postmenopause. And then pregnancy is another one we have to look at, right? So we're looking at the early stages and people don't know what to do. They might not feel well. They might have the myths of, oh, you shouldn't do any kind of high intensity or you shouldn't put your get your heart rate above 140 beats per minute. And those are all misconceptions as well. It's you just keep doing what you're doing. Your body's going to tell you when you should stop. The focus that you should have during pregnancy is you're not trying to build, you're trying to maintain. And part of that maintenance is resistance training. You can still keep doing resistance training, but it's not heavy loads and putting a really good precedence on pelvic floor health so that if you end up with a really difficult vaginal birth, then you have the tools in the toolbox to heal faster. Um, so those are some of the, you know, like there are points through a woman's life where you have to kind of take a pause. Whereas in men, they age in a linear fashion, right? So it's like they could keep doing the same things that they're doing until they're 65. And then they might say, oh, I'm not recovering as well. I better have a have a pause here and see what I need to be doing. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what high intensity interval training is, can you explain that? Yeah, so there's true high intensity interval training and then the subset is sprint interval training, but not running sprints, it's just intensity. So when we talk about true high intensity interval training, the intervals are one to four minutes long at around 80% or on a scale of one to 10, hitting about a seven or eight RPE for that interval. And then the recovery between is variable. So you might have one minute, you might have four minutes, but the goal of that is a metabolic stress. When we're talking about sprint interval training, this is really high intensity. So you're hitting a nine or 10 on that scale of one to 10. It's technically 110% of max. So you're going as hard as you can for 30 seconds or less, and then you're recovering fully. So it might be two minutes, it might be five minutes between those so that you can do it again, because it is more of a nervous system and a fast 
generation ATP CP response. It's not as much of a metabolic response. So we need to have that full recovery between each of those intervals in order to get the best out of that session. And people might find they can do three and they're completely tapped out. And like, wait, that wasn't very long. But those three 30 second blasts with recovering between is a much stronger adaptive stress on cardiovascular and metabolic and central nervous system than going and doing a 30 minute run. And follow up to that, how does that look for somebody like my mom, for example, who she's struggling with osteopenia, she, you know, doesn't have the greatest mobility. I mean, she's walking, she's doing her thing, but exercise is not at the forefront of her mind. So does that look different for somebody at that age? Maybe they're in their 70s. How does that play out? So if we're looking at um, how are we going to benefit someone who is like your mom or like my mom and stuff? So we have to see what their limitations are. So if they have osteoarthritis, as well as osteopenia, then if they're out walking, we have them walk up a hill. And so that becomes intensity, right? So they might walk up for one minute, focusing on trying to be a little bit faster and then slowly come down for the recovery. Or maybe if they're on, on the flat, they're going the old fashioned fartlek where there's a lamppost to a lamppost and you're picking up the pace. So it's all relative when I talk about intensity. And it's, it's within your own limitations. So it's the same as someone who's first starting out to, to exercise, right? They're just trying to move and they're not really appreciative of, of what it means to, to push that hard. So it's, okay, we want you to pick up the pace by 10 seconds a mile or something like that. So you're really kind of looking within those limits just to push a little bit, but not to create injury or too much discomfort that people won't do it again. And I'm curious, how often should someone be prioritizing this high intensity training? Like, would you recommend every other day back to back or it doesn't really matter? When we're looking at like mid forties up to just the onset of, of menopause, we say two hit and one sit per week with around three true resistance, heavy resistance training sessions a week. When we get into later post-menopause, we need more frequent doses, but less volume. So then we're saying I mean, three sit trainings a week, maybe four with none of the longer intervals. So it's just short, sharp stuff. When we're younger, it doesn't matter really. Like if you're someone who wants to do high intensity every day, you're going to find that you're not really capable of doing high intensity yeah. properly every day. That's why I asked. I'm like, I'm dead for like the next day. I can't yeah. do anything. Yeah. So um, when we're younger, it's yeah, every other day. And sometimes you might feel really fantastic and maybe you're doing one morning and, and then the subsequent next evening. So it's not really day off in between, but from a chronological and biological standpoint, you have a lot of recovery in between. And to really make sure you're fueling well for it because sure. you want to recover from it so that you can hit those intensities again the next time you, you go out for it. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. 
I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. And does that play into this idea of low energy availability, which you discuss? What is that? And how do we know if we're draining our body's battery sources? Low energy availability is widespread and it's just now really starting to hit, I guess, the popular uh, media and stuff, but it's been around in elite sport for a long time. It used to be termed um, the athlete, female athlete triad, but now we see it has wider ramifications of that. So Low energy availability is when you're looking at how much food you are taking in for everything that you're doing. So if you're lying on the couch just watching Netflix and you have a remote and you're just doing that all day, binge watching, I don't know, Yellowstone or something like that, (laughs) you have a baseline amount of calories that you need. Most women sit around... 14 to 1800 calories, depending on how much lean body mass they have. As soon as they get up to do stuff around the house, you need more calories. As soon as you leave the house and you're walking to do errands, you need more calories. And when we start getting into low energy availability, this is where we see all the trendy diets coming into play in the recreational athletes, where they're trying to maintain a a certain fasting window or they're doing a, a a high protein, lower carbohydrate, or maybe they've just switched to plant-based and they get too full before they get enough in. So they're trying to do life, which is more than just Netflix and walking around the house, which you know requires calories because stress everything. And then they're adding training onto that. So if we start looking at the amount of calories that a typical woman needs who might be five, five, does three to four sessions a week, plus has a career, you're around 23 to 2,500 calories a day. And if you say that to most women, they freak out. I can't eat that much. I don't eat that much. If I eat that much, I'm going to put weight on. It's like, well, actually, you're walking around in this chronically low state, which is why you feel tired but wired, and you can't change your body composition. If we were to increase your calorie intake smartly, like working with chronobiology and when you're training and making sure you're getting enough protein, going to increase the calories over the course of a couple of weeks, you're going to find you have more energy, you are sleeping better, and you're losing that extra body fat that you've been trying so hard to lose without so much effort. Because now your brain is going, wait, there's enough energy coming in. There's enough calories coming in. I can do all the functions I need to do. I can have a really robust uh, endocrine health. So 
thyroid's working, menstrual cycle is working, everything's just sweet. So it just kind of relaxes. And we see that there's about 55% of recreational female athletes who are in low energy availability. So it's really widespread and it's increasing because of all the push for intermittent fasting and fasted training. We need to shout this from the rooftops, of course, because we're always talking about this. How many friends of mine, no shade or judgment to them, I tell them to their face so they can listen to this and I'll tell them <laughs> the same thing later. They do not eat, like yes. they eat one tiny little meal a day and then they're oh, hitting no. the gym and then they're, it's still this pervasive idea that if I eat just way less calories and I do the most, it's like a badge of honor. And then they wonder why they can't lose weight and it breaks mm -hmm. my heart. So I'm so glad we're talking about this. Yeah, it's the culture that we've all been exposed to growing up, right? So we've been exposed to calories in, calories out, the long aerobic classes, the fat burning classes, the you know, delay eating, try to be as small as possible, leave stuff on your plate, all of those messages that are telling women to be small and not to eat. Mm -hmm. And now we have the conversations coming out of eat lots, eat lots of protein, be really robust in what you're doing, take care of your body. And it's such a contraindication from for our brain and the way that we've grown up that it's so incredibly difficult for women to break out of that little mold because people have this fear that as soon as they start eating for their activities, they're going to get fat. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. And it, it, it's so hard to walk people through it. So once they start putting the calories in for about three weeks, like, Oh my God, I'm putting weight on. It's like, no, it's not actual tissue weight. It's muscle glycogen. It's liver glycogen. It's increased blood plasma. And these are all the things that your body needs. And it's going to settle once the brain recognizes that, that you're eating this and this is the new normal. And then over the course of about three months, everything settles and people are like, wow, I can't believe that I was eating so little, little before. What do you say, Dr. Stacey, to people who are like, you know, I'm not hungry in the morning. Like I can't eat as much. And this is actually something I'm dealing with. Like I'm all about protein. It has changed my life. I look back like what you said. And I'm like, how did I survive and function? Like my brain is completely on fire in the best ways, but I'm trying to increase my protein intake, my carb intake, everything. And sometimes I'm like, man, I can't fit it in my stomach. So I know a lot of women feel that way. How do you recommend that we kind of increase our, I guess, food intake, or if someone's like, I'm not feeling hungry, how do we manage through that? Yeah, I am one of those women that is never feels really hungry till about 11. But by the time 11 rolls around, I've done my training, I've had a gazillion meetings, I've gotten my kid to school. And it's like, I can't wait until I'm hungry to eat. So I make things that aren't too filling, but are very jam-packed full of nutrients. And then I slowly put some of that in. So I might be grazing in the morning. And then when my appetite comes, I have real meals. So when we're trying to really increase calories and trying to get people to eat, it's small amounts. As we start to increase, we might put a little bit more in the meal because you're sitting down and you're eating a meal. So it, we might increase uh, the serving of protein there. We might put in some more fruit with the salad. So just slowly eking it up. The one hazard is when people start eating a lot more plant-based materials because then the fiber gets them too full. 
I want people to be plant forward, but I also am very conscious that people get too full before they meet their nutrient requirements. So this is where you're like, okay, well, maybe we go for a smoothie, a smoothie with some protein powder in it, or maybe we have chia seeds and nut butter in that smoothie. And it's a lot easier to bring in and digest when it's in the liquid form too. I love that. That's super helpful for me just to kind of graze a little bit and slowly add in. I think that's more approachable than when someone's like, oh gosh, how, you know, how am I supposed to get all this protein, fat and carbs? And, and actually one thing I'd love to talk about, I still think, you know, a lot of women demonize carbs. They think it's bad for us, you know, for them. So how do you think women should think about carbohydrates? Well, when we talk about low energy availability and all the ramifications of that, we see that low carbohydrate availability is just as bad. It it gives you the same endocrine responses and ill health responses as having not enough calories come in. So when we talk about carbohydrate, again, it's nuanced based on how old you are. So, you know, younger women who don't have PCOS, don't have any kind of insulin resistance, you really want to make sure that you're fueling for what you're doing. So that's the day. Like if you have a very stressful day, you need carbohydrate. Your brain needs it. We need more carbs than men. I'm not talking about ultra processed foods. I'm not talking about all the um, protein bars that have carbs in it. It's like have a banana, have mangoes, have other fruit, have sprouted grain bread, you know, don't be afraid of it because there's so many other things that come in those foods that complement the health, that complement what you're putting in your gut for your gut microbiome, it's helping with vitamin intake, iron intake, all of these things instead of going, oh, I don't want carbs because, you know, I'm supposed to be low carb. Because um, when we're looking at carbohydrate intake, that's really how we get so much food for our lower gut, our gut microbiome. And that's so important. So if we're avoiding a lot of fruit and veg and grains because they're carbohydrate, we're compromising the diversity of our gut microbiome. We start compromising that gut, then we lose things like the ability to convert and have vitamin K, which is essential for bone density. We lose a lot of serotonin because we see 95% of serotonin is produced by the gut. We have a misstep in our hormone production because we have a second pass and deconjugation from those gut bugs in the in the lower intestine. So it's really that eye to what are we doing from a holistic standpoint to take care of our bodies to maintain health and longevity, and it's that gut. So you need those carbohydrates for that gut, but then we also talk about it as being available for fueling your high intensity workouts, recovering from those and feeling good in those workouts. So the carnivore diet might not be the solution. <laughs> no. no. I want to um, go back to the training differences for, for men and women. I mentioned to my grad school friends that we were interviewing to you today and they're huge fans. They were so excited. They all wanted me to tell you that they love you um, oh, and they love your book. And so they did, I did get a couple of questions. I want to go through one of them, if that's okay. Sure. So I would love thoughts on the best ways for women to use their hips rather than their shoulders to bear weight, like with rucking or other exercises or other caring activities that are functional for women. Are there differences for men and women when it comes to weight bearing exercises? Yeah, our center of gravity for one. So men's center of gravity is more upright in the chest and women's center of gravity is down around the hips. So when we're doing things like rucking with um, extra heavy backpacks and we're trying to load on the shoulders, 
it's putting our center of gravity off. So when we're looking at rucking with a heavy backpack, you want to make sure that the weight is low in the backpack and you have um, really good hip straps to be able to center that around. So you're taking the load in your lower muscles and you're not trying to offshoot it from the shoulders. When we talk about um, like overhead lifts and, and those kinds of things, it's really learning how to do the hip extension. So you're using more momentum instead of pure power to like the strength to push things up. Um, and then it's also things like recovery. So if we're working in the gym and we're working on uh, weight-bearing movements within the gym, if we're looking to do obstacle course racing or something like that, it's looking at how much recovery we have between because women are more fatigue resistant. So in order to get better central nervous system responses and better adaptation, we need less recovery between heavy exercises. So if you have a, a set of like monkey bars and then you have to go do rope climb and then you have some time off, you need less recovery between those in order to get the same kind of adaptation as men. So when we're looking at those training differences, it's knowing center of gravity is lower. So you don't want to use a weight vest. You want to put something that's lower around the hips and the lower back. And then when we're looking at training in the gym for odd obstacles, it's less recovery between those sets. That's great. Yeah. I had no idea that women were better at recovery than men when it comes to certain things. A win yeah, for there's, <laughs> Yeah, I know. There's a review that came out yesterday. Yeah, yesterday, and it was sent to me, and it's looking at um, submaximal and maximal resistance training between men and women in the gym, and the women mm. just were superseding everything when they were able to reduce that recovery between. I was like, yes, finally, there's a review that really <laughs> quantifies everything that we're talking about. Well, I'm also curious, what are your thoughts on syncing your cycle with training? Yeah, so when we're looking at it, a few years ago, it came out like when we're looking at the metabolic stress and we see that estrogen is anabolic. So we want to do higher intensity work in the follicular phase. Mm -hmm. That's still appropriate. Our immune system is still really robust. We're very responsive to stress and can overcome stress when we're in the low hormone phase. The issue is the high hormone phase because we don't really know if you're in the high hormone phase because you bleed even if you have an anovulatory cycle. So when we're trying to find ovulation and low versus high, it becomes very nuanced. So as an individual woman, knowing your own cycle and how you feel is how we are now really approaching the cycle sync. We know the basic physiology and how things shift, but the best way to dial it in is to track your cycle know how you feel on certain days because you're going to see a pattern and then adjust your training there. Because I think it got really out of hand where people are saying after ovulation, you can't do anything except yin yoga. It's like, well, no, that's not right. It's you, if you want to do high intensity, you have to supply some more carbohydrates so that you have the available blood glucose to hit those high intensities. Mm -hmm. When you have a day where you supposedly are supposed to go really hard and you feel really flat, don't go hard, like listen to your body. Cause there are things there where there could be a hormone shift occurring at that point, And it occurs every month for you at that point. Don't push it. 
the next day you feel fantastic, that's when you do the hard workout. So it's the nuances of your own cycle that you really want to pay attention to. I love that. And I, I even think just giving myself grace was really important because there would be times when I was working with a male trainer where one week I was able to lift a certain amount or I was able to endure way more. And then literally the next week I was like, what is with me? Like yep. last week I was good, but this week I feel like I can't even barely lift this and I would beat myself up. And just that knowledge or that awareness of like, hey, what we're going to be able to handle week to week changes. And that's totally okay. Because maybe mm -hmm. two weeks from that point, I'll be back at it again. And just giving ourselves that grace has been a huge learning lesson for me. Yeah, when you start to understand your own cycle, it takes away that negative self talk, where I mean, I am a initially a thermoregulation um, environmental physiologist, so understanding hot and cold. And I would go to um, hot yoga and the Bikram classes and most of the time I could handle it. And then there'd be some times where I'm like, oh my God, this is way too hot. What the hell's going on? And I realized that it was always about three or four days before my period started. I was like, oh, I should know this. Your internal temperature is up and your thermoregulation is compromised. But I just didn't put it together until I really started tracking and understanding. And when it comes to hot and cold therapy, I'd love for you to talk about that. Are there any differences for women that we should be aware of when we're practicing these types of therapies? Yes, absolutely. Ice bath is way too cold for women. So when we're looking at cold therapy and cold immersion and all these people like, oh, the endorphin rush you get from ice, it causes a vagal response for women. So it is that immediate downturn of respiratory respiratory rate, heart rate, can't get your heart rate up. You feel very tired for the rest of it because it's absolutely too cold. We look at the gradient. The first thing that happens instead of the body able to respond with a shivering response, which happens with men and first, first exposure, we get severe constriction and we get severe vagal responses, which is dangerous. We look at cold water where it's around 16 degrees C, so it's about 58 degrees Fahrenheit. That's cold enough. That's where we start to get some of those more parasympathetic responses, the ability to withstand different cold to tolerances, a little bit of the, the health aspects of telomere changes and that kind of stuff. But when we look at the heat research, women respond really well to the heat. We see so many more robust cardiovascular changes, better responses with heat shock protein, better um, metabolic control, and we get an increase in that sympathetic drive much faster and it's easier to tap into when we're looking at heat exposure. So I'm always telling women, go for the sauna, not for the ice. And I'm sure pretty much all of them love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Except for the strange people up in the very, very northern part of the world who love oh, ice yeah. swimming. Yeah, the Nordic like, culture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's your, yeah, but then, you know, they jump into the sauna after. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, there you go, sauna. Well, I feel seen because I never got into the cold therapy. I'm like, I couldn't even do a cold shower. I can't jump in cold water. I'm like, this is a one time in my life I'm going to listen to my body and it doesn't feel good and it overstresses me. So, I feel very seen with what you just said. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Don't do it. 
you had a really interesting post the other day about creatine and depression, which was uh, super fascinating. I think a lot of people still don't know what creatine is. They probably think it's for musclehead men going to the gym, but has so many benefits. So what is creatine and can you talk about some of the benefits? Yeah, creatine is a natural occurring product in your body. We produce around three grams from the liver a day, and it's very essential for all the fast energetics in the body. So if we talk about the first 20 to 30 seconds of a muscle contraction, it's a creatine response. We're looking at the breakdown and we need um, creatine to help with that. And we also see that it's very well used by the gut. So we keep the um, mucosal lining of the gut really well intact with creatine. The brain uses it. So when we talk about supplementation, especially for women, we know that women have around 70% of the endogenous or internal stores that men have. So men have a greater advantage to it. If we look at dosing with three, at the most five grams of creatine monohydrate a day, it super saturates everything in our body. So we have better muscle function. We have better gut function. We have better brain health. And so this is where the depression comes from. For looking at how the brain is working and the energetics around the brain, Part of it is neurotransmitter misstep. Part of it is, you know, some of the metabolism. So if we're having more creatine, it helps support all of the brain functions and helps women get out of depressive episodes a lot faster than they would have. So it's one of those things like I tell a lot of women who are dubious about using it, let's start with one and a half grams. So that's a half a teaspoon. And we want to really make sure if you suffer from something like seasonal affective disorder, that you start loading it in advance, maybe in October before you hit the Northern Hemisphere winter, because it's going, going to help with that whole just grayness sitting on your shoulders for the whole of winter. So it's really important that women take an eye to that. It's the most studied supplement. There was a paper that came out three weeks ago on pregnant women using it and seeing how much your body uses creatine with the development of new tissue as well as the mom's greater metabolic costs. So it's also very safe to supplement. So it's one of the things like every time I ask what supplement should women use, make creatine. It's so important, creatine. And there's a website now called Creatine for Health, and it has all the latest publications and translated from big science into normal words. So you can keep up to date, uh, especially for women, because they're studying a lot of women in the creatine space now. Wow. I wonder if it would also help then women with uh, postpartum depression. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we look at some of the randomized control trials of women with severe depression, which can be postpartum, right? We see severe depressive episodes with postpartum. Putting on a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, typical SSRI, may or may not help. But when they dose with creatine, it absolutely does help. So it's it, it goes with the adage of it does support neurotransmitter and brain health. So prophylactically, maybe if you know you're at risk, try it, but definitely be aware that postpartum is something that is severely life altering. And I speak from having it for four years undiagnosed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so yeah. multifaceted, I'm sure there's, it you is. Know, there's thyroid stuff to consider. There's all types of mm. things that happen after we give birth, which is a whole other yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't been investigated very well, right? Because no. men don't give birth. 
Yeah. <laughs> Dang it. I wish they, I wish they could. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they, they probably could. would, but I don't know if we would be surviving because of all the things that goes into pregnancy. And totally, totally. Yeah, the study that you shared was so fascinating. These women were taking SSRIs. One group was on a placebo. The other group was on creatine. The women who were taking uh, supplementary creatine were seeing symptoms of depression reduced by week two of taking it. And then by week eight, over 50% of them had remission in depression. So I just thought that's amazing. If there's anybody out there who's taking SSRI with you know, maybe you're not having success. You want to consider other stuff. Talk to your doctor about creatine because that's pretty amazing to see those types of results. Yep. And it's, like I said, it's down to the brain energetics. We still don't know specifically how an SSRI works because it's, they assume that it's the interplay between serotonin and epinephrine. But when they really start investigating, they're like, well, it's really not that we don't actually know. We know it does do something to brain energetics, but we're not sure. So when we start looking at creatine and how it affects brain and brain health, it's like, well, yeah, maybe it's not the serotonin and norepinephrine interplay. Maybe it has to do with metabolism of the brain. So yeah, lots of cool things to still come out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious. I mean, outside of creatine, I learned a lot right there. What would be maybe one or two other supplements that you recommend that might be your top supplements when it comes to women's health? Vitamin D3, of course, creatine. And then I'm a big fan of different adaptogens, but that's more individual and specific. When someone's really tired, but wired, I try to get them to start with ashwagandha or rhodiola, pretty inert ones that work well. And then if things go a little bit sideways or they need something different, then we really investigate what what are the signs and symptoms? What do you need? And then look at the nine different adaptogens that have a lot of robust RCTs around them. I know we're coming up on time, but I want to end on this question. If somebody's listening to this, they're a woman, they're really new to their health and wellness journey, their fitness journey. What are some of maybe like three things that you think every woman should just prioritize starting today, no matter where they are in their health journey? Sleep hygiene and getting good sleep because nothing goes right without really good sleep. And that goes from being able to deal with stress in the day all the way through body composition and metabolic health. So sleep's super important. Taking care of your gut microbiome because that also helps with brain and sleep and immunity. And then if we're looking for fitness, starting with resistance training, and it doesn't have to be heavy lifting. It can be just the push-pull action of increased load that you are pushing and pulling against. So we see the benefits for resistance training through the entire lifespan from young girls who are just starting into sport and really trying to stay in sport all the way through 80, 90 year old women. Of course, the way you're lifting and what you're lifting changes based on where you are in your life. But that is one of the biggest things. Once you start getting that resistance training down pat, then we can look at what kind of cardiovascular work you want to add in. Weight loss is still such a big goal for a lot of people, especially women. Can you talk about just why the three things that you mentioned there are so significant? Because I think that sometimes that is people's entry point into wanting to get healthier is they have that weight loss goal. But all three things that you just mentioned help with that. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So if we don't get enough sleep, our brain is tired. And the first thing that we start craving are simple carbohydrates. The other thing when we're overly tired is we end up with a little bit of insulin resistance and elevated cortisol. And that combination creates environment that puts on and keeps body fat. 
when we're looking at resistance training and building that lean mass, we are building metabolically active tissue that helps with blood glucose control. We also have a kind of a crosstalk between the skeletal tissue that's being built and the intensity of the resistance training with body fat. So it tells especially the deep visceral fat and abdominal adiposity to go away. We don't need it. There's some, been some really cool studies that shows when younger women are just doing three times a week compound exercises of 10 to 15 reps, they significantly decrease their abdominal fat. And it is this crosstalk between the skeletal muscle and the um, adipose tissue. And then of course, gut microbiome, right? When we look at gut microbiome, it's so essential for so many different aspects. I mean, for a woman, again, it's really important to have that diversity so that we have better hormonal control. We have that second pass where your sex hormones go to the liver. It's bound by sex hormone binding globulin that's excreted into the intestines with bile. And then your gut bugs deconjugated or unbinded from that sex hormone binding globulin, shoot it back out into circulation. So then you have better hormonal control and responses. If you aren't taking care of your gut microbiome, then we start to see a decrease in the diversity, specifically those bugs and we get an increase in the obesogenic aspect. So unfortunately, we see an increase in the firmicutes phyla, which promotes inflammation, promotes body fat gain, promotes insulin resistance. So when we're looking at how all three of those, the sleep, the resistance training, and taking care of the gut microbiome, not only are the combination of those three really important for overall health, but when we look at body composition, those are the three critical things that really do help attenuate body fat gain and help to lose extra body fat. Yeah, I love that. I, I think it's playing the long game, right? I think a lot of people want a quick, fast solution, which is we've been seeing that with just all the drugs and stuff that people are taking. Yeah, I was going to say they want a Zimpec. <laughs> they want a Zimpec, <laughs> which, you know, I, I don't have anything to say about that. But um, what you're kind of really? I do. <laughs> well, I would love to hear. It. Yeah. What are your thoughts? If there's enough time to go through it, we'd love to hear. <laughs> yeah. So when I look at all the injectables and the rapid weight loss that comes with it, it's lean mass, right? And we have a, such a difficult time to build lean mass and bone mineral density. So when I'm looking at people who need Ozempic for weight loss, I can see it as a tool in the toolbox where it's going to get people to a certain point where they feel comfortable, but we don't have the conversation of what are the tools to then be able to come off it. We're not teaching people how to exercise properly, how to get to sleep, how to eat properly. You know, none of those tools are coming into play. It's the pharmaceutical companies that are saying, here, take this, and you're going to be the weight that you want to be. And I'm just really afraid for what happens in 10 years because we don't have the longitudinal studies. We see that there are significant side effects because the whole goal of using the Ozempic and the semiglutides is to reduce gastric emptying rate to pretty much tell your brain it's okay to be anorexic. So when we start seeing the dysregulation of appetite hormones and um, sex hormones, the longer term ramifications is very scary as a physiologist and a person in the health space. So if we're talking about injectables and they are there and they can be used, they have to be used in conjunction with the education of how to make 
the true changes to support lean mass development, to support changes in insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, whichever direction you want to go. And those things aren't happening. Yeah, it's so true. I, I remember, I think I read a study, I don't know if it's it's accurate or not, about gastric bypass at one point. And they were saying that just making the changes that you're supposed to make after you get gastric bypass surgery led to the same results as getting the gastric bypass surgery and then making the dietary changes. And I don't know, it just kind of made me think of that, these like quick fix solutions that people are trying to have versus just like, hey, make the dietary changes, make the fitness changes, make the sleep changes. And like you said, it'll be interesting to see what happens in 10 years. Hopefully it's not too frightening, but it doesn't look that way. Yeah. I think part of the problem now is we're, we have had enough of an issue with obesity in the States. It's now a genetic problem because of the epigenetic changes. So now we're saying that babies that are being born into this generation already have the predisposition to obesity because of what our generation was exposed to. So when we're seeing the issues that people are having now with obesity, it does become an individual aspect of, okay, what is the family history? What environment are you in? And what tools can we use to really help rein this in? And again, you know, it, it isn't happening. People aren't having the wider look in the, and the sociocultural conversations that go with it. And, what tools that you need. And so it, yeah, it's, it's frustrating, especially as an expat out of the country. And then I look and I come home, I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's quite scary, especially when it affects children. Um, yes. Because they're so innocent and they don't I know. have to advocate for them. They are not the ones that are making the decisions. And so hopefully somebody somewhere can step into that space, but we're so grateful for you for stepping into the women's space and spreading truths about women's bodies. It's so necessary. I can't wait to see what's next for you. I'm very, very excited. And I'm excited to get this conversation out there. Thank you so much, Stacey. This was a blast. Appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.